Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigSceneDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Welcome to this episode of Tim Coffeen Talks IndyCar and Racing History. During each program, Tim will take you behind the scenes and share stories and memories from his long career in the world of IndyCar competition. With seven championship rings to his credit, Tim not only understands auto racing history, he has lived it. And now, for the most famous words in racing history. Drivers! Start your engines! Welcome to the second episode of When Tim Coffeen Talks IndyCar Racing. And Tim, we were really pleased to share some time with you last, uh, last episode as you gave us the history of the fabulous Indianapolis 500. My name is Joe Ziemba. I also double as Tim Coffeen's cousin, although he regrets that. And he has asked me to kind of share in some of the questions and answers that uh, we're going to talk about tonight. And we're going to focus today about the 500 itself, game day. And Tim is going to take us behind the scenes, into the garage, into the pits, and rely on his experiences from many years and seven rings from the IndyCar racing. So, Tim, if you're ready to go, let's start out. How has qualifying for the Indy 500 changed over the years? Uh, it's changed quite a bit, Joe. Uh, the way when I worked at Newman Haas in the uh, 80s and 90s, uh, we would go down the first week of May from Chicago. The practice back then, the week before qualifying, there used to be four days of qualifying at Indianapolis, uh, two weekends. And there'd be a whole week of practice previous. So you'd run seven days and then uh, draw for qualifying on a Friday night. And then there would be the first day of qualifying would be on a Saturday and the second day would be on Sunday. And then you practice for another week. There would be another weekend of qualifying. So there was four days of qualifying back when, but that's all changed now and they do it all in one weekend. So it's, it's quite a bit different. Do you think it's a lot easier for the crews now with this limited qualifying that's now in existence? Absolutely not. They don't get as much track time. I mean, they they start the month of May now on the road course. Uh, Tony George built a road course there about 2000 when he got the Formula One race and through the infield. So now the IndyCar starts the month of May on the road course. So will go down there uh, a week from this weekend, which will be – they go to Indy. I think they load in like the 11th uh, of May and – they practice and qualify on Friday the 13th, and then they'll warm up and race on uh, Saturday, May 14th. 
so they already they they go down there and they run another track before they ever run the oval. The track will be closed all day on Sunday. They can't get in the track, and they most teams have two cars. They'll run a road course car in the race, and then they'll have a spare car. Or the Indy Five Hundred car will be uh, that'll be prepared and ready to go when the track opens on Tuesday. Uh, things have changed so much. Uh, one of the things I think that is is quite different is that there was months at, in Indianapolis. I when I worked in Newman Haas, I worked on Michael's crew and Mar, uh, Nigel and Mansell's crew. Uh, but Mario was our teammate, and I think one May his team changed nine engines. They had a lot of problems, and nowadays uh, the manufacturers uh, they say you can get twenty eight hundred miles out of an engine. So that's quite a bit different than it used to be. So uh, teams will go down there nowadays, and they'll run the week before qualifying and qualify on that engine. And then uh, there's two engine companies now, uh, Honda and Chevy. They'll give the teams a, a race engine. Another thing that's really changed is bumping used to be a huge deal. There could, back in the days, there there would be, and I'm not exaggerating, there could be 45 drivers. And it, there were years when they had, years when they had 100 cars entered. And uh, so the, once the 33 qualifiers, uh, when the field was full, then they started doing what they call bumping. Uh, that doesn't happen so much anymore. And in fact, this year, I think they've only got 33 entries. It's the, you got to have an engine contract to run the race. You just can't put a fly by night. I'm not going to say fly by night, but a lot of, in the old days, guys would do a one off deal and they'd get a car and put a crew together and, go to Indianapolis and try to make the race and hire a driver. Well, that, that doesn't happen anymore. Uh, it's, it's it's very corporate. Uh, it doesn't mean the work's any less or it's it's uh, still it's a heck of a lot of uh, preparation goes into it, but it, it's quite a bit different than it used to be. I always wanted, wanted to know, Tim, this is probably going to be obvious to anyone who's closer to the Indy 500, but how are the, the arrangement or the order of the pit boxes determined at the track? Uh, by, by how you qualified. So uh, the most advantageous pits during the race are towards turn one, because when you leave your pit box, uh, you don't have as much crossover traffic. I mean, when I say crossover, for instance, it, if you're up in turn four, there's 33 pit boxes, obviously. And if you're all the way up towards turn four, you're going to have cars that are going to be driving by you on the outside and turning in front of you. And if you qualify well, uh, you can pick your pit. And the pole winner, I guarantee, is always going to have pit out because when the, when you leave your pit, all you're looking at is, is uh, an open lane to go. So it's that's another thing that enters into it that maybe – maybe people don't think about, but it's a big advantage to be down towards turn one because you got less traffic down there. And returning to the fact there's now actually two races in May at Indy. And did you say you have to have two separate cars because they're two separate courses? Well, I spoke to Todd Phillips, one of my former teammates at Newman Haas. He's the chief mechanic for uh, Takuma Sato at Dale Coyne. He told me that they they're going to have two cars and that's how they do it. Uh, you know, they got a road course car and, uh, and they prepare a car at their shop in Plainfield, Illinois. It'll be prepared to go. That'll be their oval car. But 
there's a lot of work to be done. Even if you don't don't have to build a whole new car for the race, there's you got to take the electronics off the car, and there's there's it's it's not just a it's it's not a quick swap. There's there's work to do. So yeah, there are two cars, but it, it doesn't change the fact that there's a lot of work to do. Ooh. Now we're going to jump into that treasure chest, which is the mind of Tim Coffeen. We're going to talk about race day and the teams. So back when you were with Newman Haas, how did the entire team get to Indy? How did you travel? Where did you stay in Indianapolis? Oh, we were located in Lincolnshire, Illinois. So obviously, if you're going to be someplace for three and a half weeks, uh, Newman Haas had always put us up. We stayed in nice places. Uh, one year we stayed uh, Davey Evans was my roommate and for t- 13 years, and we stayed two years on the 29th floor of the Riley Towers looking down at the city in a, in a penthouse. It was pretty cool. But we always had a nice place to stay, and the team would supply uh, vans with like 12-seat vans for guys that didn't want to drive, could drive down to the track from Chicago and, uh, and ride to the track every day in the van. And a lot of guys, myself included, preferred uh, to drive my own car. So that that's how the transportation and the lodging was. They took care of us that manner. Did you have a per diem uh, for food or did the team take care of all your meals uh, and on site? Well, they fed us every day. Newman Haas is one of the most, I mean, Peter, Mary Lynn Murphy, they were in our hospitality center. And I mean, they were just top of the line. Uh, they had a kitchen uh, a trailer that they, they, they took the, hospitality center was a bus with a trailer behind it and they fed us and uh bernie and carl haas and paul newman they paid us they would give you an envelope with cash for the month of may before you ever left chicago to go to indianapolis so we were well taken care of oh that's amazing and so good to hear wow and and describe your hours and duties on race day what time did you get to the track did the entire team go together to make sure everyone was present well, the, the traffic situation in Indianapolis, uh, you got 350,000 people that want to get in the place and the gates don't open till five o'clock in the morning. So we used to have Bobby Flowers was Paul Newman's and Carl Haas's bodyguard. Well, he was a ex Indiana state policeman and he would always arrange for us to have a motorcycle escort. Everybody would ride in the vans then, and it was cool to go, go roaring down 16th Street with motorcycle policemen next to you with the sirens going and, you know, roaring by all the fans that have been waiting in line for hours on 16th Street. And then you'd pull in, and we get in the track probably 4.15, 4.30 in the morning, you know, it's dark out, and the tower's all lit up on the straightaway, illuminating the grandstands and everything. It was pretty uh, spectacular, and... I always remember they, they would set a bomb off at 5 o'clock in the morning, and they would open the gates to the public. And back in the day before they tore the Tower Terror stands down, a lot of the guys would run up into the grandstands and watch the maniacs roar through the gate uh, to get the <laughs> spots at the snake pit in turn one. So there was there's so many traditions at Indy that, uh, you know, they're – I don't think it's still the same as it was, but that was always entertaining. Oh, that sounds amazing as well. So you talked about getting in the track at 4.30 or 5 in the morning. What was the first thing that the crew had to do? The car was already there, I'm assuming, in a garage. Uh, but what were your responsibilities that early in the day? That early in the day, not much. You know, The race back in the day, I think now it starts like 12.45 uh, in the afternoon. Uh, traditionally, for many years, the 500 started at 11. So 
they would always feed us first. And then, of course, you'd, you get the car warmed up. You got to start the car and warm it up. And there's things like you got probably 10 sets of tires you're going to have in your pits to, for 500 miles, uh, potentially. Uh, so you, you know, you'd move the, the, you'd have to move your pit equipment out and your tires to the pit lane. Uh, and then when they open the gates in the morning, you'd, you'd run through tech real quick. And then, uh, everyone had to go through tech and then you would go out to the pits and practice a couple pit stops maybe and wait until they called for you to roll the thing out on the grid. Whoa. Again, and, and you talked last time about your lifelong love of the Indy 500 and how you were always there and anxious to be part of it. And in that first episode, you talked about a couple of your mentors that helped you get started at the track. But what was it like going way back your first time as a team member? What was it like when you walked out of the, onto that track before those hundreds of thousands of people? Well, there's nothing like there is nothing like the Indianapolis Motor Speedway on race day. Uh, the it's incredible how many people are there. And an example I can use is uh, I worked with uh, Nigel Mansell, drove for us in 1993. He was a reigning world champion, and uh, he'd seen just about everything. You, I mean, he when you race Formula One, uh, that's the biggest event in many countries where they run sporting wise. It's it's huge. So he'd, he'd seen just about everything. There couldn't be too much that would impress him. And we walked out on race morning in 1993, and he looked to his left, and all you could see, I mean, the double-deck grandstand, the uh, paddock penthouse on the outside of the straightaway, and the tower terrace on the inside, uh, was, was as far as the eye could see, was people. And the heat waves are starting because the it's the sun's up and it's starting to warm up a little bit and you can the bands are playing marching down the straightaway and i'll never forget he looked to his left and he looked to his right and he went bloody hell (laughs) and he'd seen an awful lot in his life so i mean that pretty much explains uh indianapolis as a race race morning is there's an electricity in the air and you got three hundred fifty thousand people there and it's uh it's a sight to behold oh And with all those people there, and I know the crews and the drivers were pretty well protected, but did you ever have any problem with fans bothering you before a race or getting access to you, either you, the team, or the drivers? No, not really. Um, The pits and everything at Indy, uh, you got to have a credential to get in there. And they police that pretty stridently. So, um I mean, it's, it's when you roll the car out, you know, the fans are shouting encouragement and cheering for you. And sometimes you hear a derogatory comment directed at your driver. But, uh, as for the most part, no, we never had any, never had any problems with fans. I mean, you, during the month of May when you're practicing, I mean, that's Indiana. It's, it's May. Uh, it's starting to warm up. You got the, the local yokels come out, drink a little beer and they get, you know, they've been inside all winter, and you look at them for 4.30 in the afternoon, their shoulders are lobster red, and they're, uh, they've had a few beers, and they can yell some pretty dumb stuff, but it's it's just part of the indie lore. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. So when we we're talking about all the pomp and circumstance going on and the, the playing of the anthem and all the ceremonies, what would be your biggest worry you're thinking about the car, but everyone else is focused on all all the activity that's going on and the 
the main part of the track. So what would your biggest worry be before the start of a race? <laughs> I hope it starts <laughs> up. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, that's you've done all you can do. I mean, you've – I remember Michael Andretti made me nervous the first year I worked with him in 89. Um, he wanted the mirrors adjusted. And um, I told him to get in the car in the garage, and he said, oh, we'll do it in the straightaway. I'm like, oh, no. I mean, I could see ripping out a, a bolt or something, and uh, that made me nervous. But um, you you got to be – your work's got to be done. I mean, that the race is the easiest part of the month, really. You've got to be – all the work and preparation you do, you basically, like I said, when you get there in the morning, you – you eat, you start the thing up, uh, you t- uh, the guys that are responsible, there's guys that take care of the pits and they're on the team, they take all the equipment out. Um, when they tell you to go through tech, you roll it through tech and you roll it out to the pits and you might do a couple pit stop practice, some pit stop practice. And then uh, when they tell you to roll it out on the straightaway and get ready for the start, you do it. And uh, like I said, it's uh, your work should be done. And uh, you're sure you're nervous and everything and there's like I said it before, there's a lot of electricity in the air, but um, it's it's the payback for all the hard work you've done to enjoy that moment. And is there anything that you see when you go on the track that spectators might not be aware of? That may be a tough or unfair question, but something going on before the start of the race or when the race first starts that, that people may not see coming? Uh, to be honest with you, Joe, the infield, or the pit lane in Indianapolis on the inside there behind the pit wall is not the greatest place to watch the race. Uh, I mean, I used to wear a, a stopwatch. I had a wristwatch that had a stopwatch in it, and I, I clocked the car every time it went by. That's how I knew where it was. I mean, their cars are going by at 230 miles an hour down the straightaway, and they come off turn four, and you can see the driver's helmet come off the corner, and you know it's your car. And, uh, I mean, they go by in a blur. So, I mean – when you're on a crew, the, the biggest communication and everything you have is through your radio. I mean, you have your strategist talking to the driver, and if the driver's not liking how the car's handling or whatever, he's going to tell you on the radio. But uh, being in the pits at Indy is not the best place to watch the race, no. Talk about that radio communication for a second, Tim. Nowadays, you might see a race where the drivers, and you can hear everything they're talking about, but in days gone by, I'm, I'm sure that's fairly new in recent years, were there any exclusive types of discussions going on that maybe the public shouldn't hear that you recall? Yeah, there was, uh, I mean, radios came out. They started using radios, and I believe, in the 70s. Uh, one particular story uh, was between A.J. Foyt and a guy that uh, I worked for at Newman Haas. It was a brilliant a mechanic engineer he could do anything but his name was tyler alexander and this didn't happen in indianapolis but it happened in an indy car so in the day i mean everybody now you can listen in on the radio i mean communication the fans got they wear earmuffs they've got radios they can listen to the teams talk to the drivers you got spotters on top of the grandstand and turns one and three that are telling the drivers when they got traffic around them or whatever but uh Back in the, when they first started with radios in their 70s, uh, it was no one was supposed to be listening in on your on your channel on your airwaves. Well, AJ Foyt accused McLaren, Team McLaren, which Tyler Alexander was one of the principal head guys there, of listening in on his radio during the race. And uh, 
So after the race, Tyler went down and he, or I'm sorry, AJ went, <laughs> he had a hold of Tyler and he had him bent over the guardrail and he was giving him a talking to. And I'd always wondered about that story when I heard about, you know, McLaren, Tyler was eavesdropping on AJ. And uh, I asked Tyler when I went to work at Newman Haas, cause he was the, he was the team manager. I asked him about that story, and I said, did you fight back when Foyt had a hold of you? And he went, he says, heavens no. He says, the man's a bloody animal. (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, racing and communication, that's a mechanic. uh, That that is your communication with the car. I mean, if if you're coming in the pits, a lot of times they'll go three, two, one, pit. I mean, when three laps, two laps, one lap, pit, um, that's how you – that's what that is, that is your line of communication that race car is your radio and and who's actually talking to the driver when you are uh, the team is in the pits and someone's talking to the driver is it the spotter or someone inside the pits well the spotter can talk to the driver too that's his job mm-hmm. i mean if like he's going into the corner and there's somebody that goes around the, tries to go around the outside or there's somebody that wheel is still like like a competitor's right front wheel is close to the left rear wheel of the car it's a spotter's responsibility to tell the driver so the the spotters can talk to the driver and then in the pits they have the strategist who um, they do the fuel you have if you look at the scoring stands in the pit lane there's massive scoring stands and you'll have six eight guys standing on them with computers they're monitoring everything that's going on with that race car they're the temperatures the tire pressures uh they got telemetry in these cars uh, you'll have a helicopter uh, hovering above the track, and it's got several teams' telemetry in it. So they're monitoring the car. That's how you communicate with your driver, and that's how you, you're aware. I mean, they know the tire pressures on the cars hmm. nowadays. In the day, back in the day, we didn't know that, but there's, there's a ton of information in all those engineers on the stand. That's a brain trust, and they got an eye on everything that's going on on that race car while it's going around the track, and they relay that information to the strategist to convey it to the driver. Ooh. Here's another wacky question from someone who wants to know. Do the cars have a fuel gauge in them, or is that all done through the monitoring? Uh, no. I mean, they, they tell – there's some digital readout on the steering wheel. The steering wheel is the dash on the car. Those cars don't have a dash. The steering wheel has a digital readout on the, uh, on the spokes of the wheel. But – uh, they don't have a gas gauge in them. I mean, there there's a lot of different modes on the on the steering wheel itself that the driver can read that will tell them what fuel setting to run, and and there's a lot of different stuff in the steering wheel. But I mean, it's not going to tell him exactly what kind of mileage he's getting. No. No. Good. Thank you for putting up with that question. <laughs> no. And how, how are pit stops managed by the team? In other words, who calls for the stop and how are the responsibilities assigned within the team? Or is that done preliminary in, in the practices that you put in? Well, number one thing is when you're running the Indy 500, uh, you want to go as far as you can on fuel under green. I mean, if a yellow comes out, if there's an accident or there's a part that drops on the track and they they slow the field down uh, that's one thing but when you're racing uh, the main objective is to the car's handling properly uh, is to run the fuel out of the car and the, that's the engineers are calculating fuel mileage I mean it's it's a huge part you know some cars get better mileage than others but 
you know, the engineers in the pits are telling, they, they'll tell the driver, they'll calculate how much fuel's in that car. And when it gets down to where they don't want to run out on the track. Uh, so they'll bring them in probably with not a lot left in it, but that's, that, that's the strategy there. You go as long as you can is the car gets lighter with less fuel in it too. So yeah, it's, it's, it's strategy. And like I said, if you have a yellow flag and a crash, um, Sometimes a car that's not running well in the back, say running in 20th place, he'll skip that yellow flag and stay out on the track where everyone else comes in and pits. He'll stay out to gain positions on the track. So there's a lot of different strategies about it. But most generally, uh, when green flag conditions, when you're racing, you want to run all the fuel out of that car. And that's, that's how you do it. Oh, okay. And what about the speed limit as someone exits the pits? Uh, they can only go a certain amount of mileage. How do you define that or enforce that? Well, I believe the speed limit now is 50 miles an hour. And there's a, uh, there's a lever on the steering wheel. Uh, you push a button on the steering wheel. It's called Pit Lane Cruise, PLC. And when you push that button, it's not going to allow the engine to go any faster than 50 hmm. miles an hour. Uh, there's been drivers, I mean, leaving the pits and the, uh, they might get a little, you know, break the tires loose and their uh, uh, thumb will slip off the, the button and then they'll, they'll speed up. And they'll, if you speed in the pits, you get penalized. They'll call you in. Um, they'll make you do a drive-through is what they call it. Uh, when they go, go back to racing, Full speed. They'll call you in the. It happened to Nigel in 1994 at Indy. Uh, they said he sped in the pits, leaving the pits. So um, that's a huge uh, blow. I mean, I mean, if you come through, you probably lose three quarters of a lap. Ooh. If you're got to get out of the throttle and drive through the pits at 50 miles an hour before you can accelerate uh, past the pit lane down to turn one to get back onto the racetrack. So. There's something in the car called pit lane cruise that controls. There's a button on the steering wheel the driver pushes that holds the car at 50 miles an hour. You know, in uh, many races I've seen you uh, participate in, and you were on the side of the car that's closest to the track, and I thought, you have to be the bravest man in the world. But are there fears, or do you, are you trusting the other drivers to go around you when you're, say, changing a tire on your car? And you've got these guys flying by from all different angles almost. Well, it, to me, it always came down to respect. Uh, Michael, uh, Michael and Mario bumped into each other a couple times. Uh, the first year they raced on the same team, father, son, imagine, <laughs> banged into each other in the pits. So the, the team management decided that Michael was always going to be in the front pit and Mario was going to be in the back pit. Well, I changed the right rear on Michael's car. And Mario would many times would be going around me on the outside. And Mario was so cool. Him and I had a deal. And I'm, I'm just going to say it how it was. We communicated. Uh, if he was leaving the pits and I was out there changing the tire, my legs were out there. And he was like, his nose was pointed towards the wall a little bit too much when he came in. And he needed more room to leave. He'd rev his engine up and talk to me. And he's telling me, skinny up, I'm coming out. And uh, it's uh, it's. And, and another thing that happens is you'll always go the, – the, the teams talk to each other. They do. Chief mechanics will go to another guy and he'll say, I'm going to – if he's in the pit box in front of you and the chief mechanic on the car in front of you towards turn one, so when you leave, the, the outside rear guy is closest to your pit, and he'll tell you, I'll have my, my crew will clean up the tire 
uh, for you to leave more easily if you'll move your right front for him coming in so he can get in easier. And the, the crews work together. They talk together, talk to each other, and communicate about that. It's it's Everyone wants to – I mean, you don't want altercations in the pits yeah. or anything like that. That's the way that works. Oh, that, that's amazing. I had no idea. Are there? Uh, what's the mood of the drivers prior to the Indianapolis 500? Do you know of any superstitions that they would like you to adhere to as you're preparing the car for the day? Uh, I mean, they used to say guys didn't like green on their race car because green was a, an unlucky color. And then <laughs> Jimmy Clark came over in 1965 and blew everybody in the weeds with a green car. So I, I don't know about superstitions you used to an old racing superstition was no peanuts in the pits and things like that but um as racing's got more international those are more like statewide stateside type superstitions um i don't i mean i i don't really believe in that kind of stuff so uh i don't know i just roll her out there (laughs) (laughs) great hey when the race is finally over it's a long day uh, is your day over once the race ends? What happens to the crew after the race is just completed, whether you win or not in the specific race? Well, being when I worked in Chicago, a lot of times guys would want to get back to the family because uh, they'd been away almost a month. So some guys would leave right after the race. But as a rule, I mean, you've got 10 sets of tires and they all got to be broken down. You got to get the tires taken off the rims and you just get your bare. You get new tires every race you go to. So you got to get the tires broken down. You got to go through tech after the race. If you drop out early, uh, yeah, I mean, you might leave early. But more than more often than not, um, we came back on Monday after the, sun, the 500s on Sunday. So we would come back on Monday and finish our job, load everything up and drive back to Chicago. And as you look back over your many years of experience and participation in the 500, is there a big personal regret you may have from all of the races that you were participating in? Well, the biggest disappointment I had is that I never worked on a team that won the race. Uh, That was why I went to work at Newman Haas. Every year at Newman Haas, I would think to myself, and talk to the guys you work with and talk to the drivers, and he had two goals. One of them was to win the Indy 500, and the other was to win the championship for the series for the whole year. I mean, as I reflect on my career, I mean, I worked with Gordon Johncock in 1981, and he led 56 laps that day, and the engine blew six laps to go. He was running second to Bobby Unzer. That was a huge disappointment. Uh, my first year at Newman Haas, Michael Andretti, we got disqualified on the first day of qualifying for being underweight, had to requalify, which put us back in 20th starting spot. And he drove from 20th. I think it was 20th. It was back in the pack, but he drove through the pack and he was leading the race. At a, it was in the lack 160 area when the engine blew coming down the front straightaway. He drove a magnificent race. 1990, uh, we didn't have the greatest month. We struggled speed-wise, uh, but he was still in the top three racing with Bobby Rahal and Ari Leyendyke and them for the, to race for the lead, and we lost the wheel bearing. And uh, 91, uh, he led 115 laps. It was 116-something like that. Michael did. We got a flat left rear during the race. We didn't know what was wrong with the car. 
Uh, he was leading the race and he was running laps at 216, 215, and he called in and said the car was trying to spin. It was getting really loose on him. Um, he slowed down almost 20 miles an hour of 195. So we brought him in. in. Those days, I just said the engineers now, they keep track of everything. We didn't have tire tr- telemetry then. He had a big cut in his left rear tire and it was down to eight pounds of air. So it was a good thing we brought him in because the tire would have come off the rim and he would have crashed. But he had lapped up to, well, Rick Mears won the race. He was running in fifth place and Michael had lapped up to six. So just didn't work out that day, but uh, Mears beat him at the end. Uh, we changed the car during the pit stop. We took wing out of the car because we didn't know why it was loose. The front wings uh, have a lot to do with, those are the easiest things to adjust during the race. And we adjusted them because we didn't, the car was loose. So we took wing out of the car. And uh, so the car never handled like it did earlier in the race. And we just, we got beat in the end. No excuses. We got beat. And uh, the next year was the worst of my career at India, 1992. Um, we didn't have a great speed month. He was sixth fastest, I think, in qualifying. And we had a car, a horrible carburation day. Uh, he wasn't happy with the car, and we had it all apart. But, man, on race day, he started outside second row, sixth. He was leading in turn one. He passed the whole field in turn one, and he led that day. I think we had a bad pit stop. It cost him some spots. But other than that, he led. The thing broke down on lap 189. He had led uh, 161 laps, and I think he turned a lap that day at 229 miles an hour in the race. We had a dominant car, and uh, his brother got hurt in the race, and Mario crashed and got hurt. So all and Michael dominated the race and dropped out. And 1992 was my biggest, biggest disappointment ever in Indianapolis. That really, really hurt. Ooh. And Tim, you've kind of covered this in previous answers, but I'm always fascinated by your answers anyway. So here's a kind of a bold question. Why do teams, why do people race at the Indianapolis 500? Well, uh, there's something about speed that attracts people, uh, the thrill of racing, uh, the old, uh, uh, it's, it's hard for me to say. I mean, there's, it's the sight, the smell, uh, the color, I mean, the kid, the menthol, I, I can still, as a little kid going to the speedway, my dad took me out there and those old offy roadsters would go, the tires used to squeal in the corners cause they'd actually be sliding those old cars and they used the brakes you could smell the brake pads. Uh, you, you could smell the fuel. Uh, and uh, there, uh, th- I thought the neatest scent there, and then there was an old man next to me smoking a cigar. And you took the scent of the fuel and the brakes and the, t- and the rubber on the track and mixed it in with the cigar, and I was, uh, I was addicted. I mean, it was just, it's the sight, the smell, the sound, uh, and it's, it's not normal everyday living. I mean, I... I uh, I guess I admit I always wanted to be different. I don't know, but racing's different. And uh I don't know, maybe I'm not making sense, but racing is uh it's intoxicating. It it really is. And uh you know, when you go to the speedway with a bunch of guys as a team and uh racing to me is the ultimate team sport. It's hard to uh put in words how hard it is sometimes to for the whole I mean, 
we would get there on a Saturday and we'd run Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday night. I'd be in the garage and it'd be eight or nine at night. And you go, "What day is it?" You know, qualifying's on Sunday. You go, "Tuesday night." Well, there's an old saying, but the old timers at the Speedway, we used to call it the year of May. It wasn't the month of May because it, and I mean, there was a lot that went into it, but there's something about racing, especially at Indy, that's, uh, I use the word a lot, but it's intoxicating. Oh, that's, that's <laughs> a great response to that, Tim. And and I want to encourage our listeners, uh, if you have questions for Tim, go to the Sports History Network site. You'll see Tim has his own uh, page within that. You can leave questions. These episodes will be up for uh, forever, so to speak, if you miss one. But as we approach the Indy 500 for the year 2022, as much as things change, a lot are different as well. And Tim, I know you wanted to have a final comment about one change that uh, will be in Indy this year, unfortunately. Yes, um, I would really like to say something about my my pal of over 50 years, Robin Miller. Uh, Robin was the dean of American Auto Racing Journalists, people would call him. He worked for NBC TV. Uh, I met him in 1968. Uh he was a lifelong friend. We call he would call you his pal, and uh, he passed away. You know, he battled cancer for four years, and he passed away last August twenty fifth. This will be the first time in over fifty years that Robin Miller won't be there. And uh, Robin was a connection uh, from the heroes of my youth, like Parnelli Jones and AJ Foyt and the Unzer brothers and Lloyd Ruby and. Uh, to the kids of today, there was just a, a mutual respect all the way down the line there. And uh, Robin was as honest as the day was long. He was a brilliant journalist. And he was he was funny because he he could be condescending. He would he he raced midgets himself, and I mechanicked his midget for him quite a bit. And uh, he called himself a mechanical moron because he said he was such a lousy mechanic. But he was there was just something about the guy. He was one of the best friends I ever had in the racing community. Just loved the guy. He, he was the eyes and the ears of the racing world. And it just went way beyond that. And, uh, to his sister, Diane, who took care of him in the last four months of his life. Uh, I just, I'm going to miss him this May. And, uh, I know a lot, a lot of others are. And, uh, you know, and I'm here getting kind of sappy, maybe, and I can hear him now. Get on with it, Fino. I mean, that's <laughs> how he was. That, that's I, I'm just going to miss him a lot, and uh, it won't be the same without him. But he would want us to go on, and uh, race is coming. So let's go racing. Tim, what a wonderful tribute. Thanks for sharing that. And, and thanks to everyone listening to this episode of Tim Coffeen Talks IndyCar Racing. He'll be back again in a couple of weeks with the new stories new memories, and uh, always entertaining. Tim, thank you again for sharing your time with us. Joe, thanks very much for having me. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, 
We have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time, as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.